When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. A podcast dedicated to giving you the latest scientific strategies and tools to help you clean up your mental mess and help others who may be struggling as well. In this episode, I interview author and professor Barry Schwartz on the paradox of choices, how having too many options is actually messing up our mental health and causing more anxiety. Barry shares some great tips on how to become a better decision maker, how to avoid buyer's remorse, how abundance is correlated to the increase in depression rates, and how choices affect us mentally and physically. Before we begin today's episode, I want to thank each and every one of you who tunes into each episode and supports this show. It makes me so happy to see how this podcast is helping so many of you realize how capable you are of managing your mental health and how it's helping you help others. I would love if you could leave a five-star review and subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen and keep sharing with friends and family. And now on to today's episode. Barry, what an absolute honor to have you in the studio with me today. I'm a tremendous fan of yours and your work is just fantastic. I mean, your TED Talks, you've done so many. You have millions that watch your TED Talks. You have a message that we all need to hear. So thank you for coming. Thank you for agreeing to talk to me today. Thank you so much, Carolyn. You're very kind. Well, can you tell my listeners, they've heard your amazing bio, but can you tell my listeners and viewers just a little bit more about yourself and maybe something that's not in your bio and why do you do what you do? What motivates you? Well, you know, so a long, 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 long time ago, I took an introductory psychology class not knowing what it was because it fit into my schedule as a college freshman. This was in 1964. Uh, I was one years old then. I was just born. <laughs> and my teacher was a guy named Philip Zimbardo, who became, who was quite a world famous psychologist. And it just got me so excited that from that day on, I was a psychologist. I took everything I could as an undergraduate. I went to graduate school, got my PhD, got a job teaching at a place called Swarthmore College outside of Philadelphia, very selective liberal arts college and spent 45 years there and then retired and moved west to be closer to my kids and grandkids. And, and now I teach, I do some teaching at Berkeley in the business school. Oh, but wow. the reason I've always been so interested in psychology is that it has seemed to me that it really asks at its best, it asks the most, most fundamental questions mm. about what 
human nature is, what people are like, what we can expect of them, what circumstances enable people to thrive, what circumstances give people great difficulty. And I think you can't understand the world without understanding human psychology. And that, you know, that was true when I started. And I suppose if this were physics, by now we would have made enough progress that yeah. that, that wouldn't still be true. But we haven't made the kind of progress one would like, although we have made progress. That's so true. It's endlessly fascinating. It is an endlessly fascinating. I agree with you. It was one of the courses that I did as well for four years, along with other courses. And it is, it's a fascinating field and it's going through a lot of challenges at the moment, the field of psychology, especially with the research and things. But you focus on a very, very interesting, well, so many different areas and you've published so extensively and you've done, as I mentioned already, so many TED Talks. You have grabbed people's interest in, in your work and I love all your books. And I wanted to start off with the one paradox of choices and why more is less and you argue that eliminating choices can greatly reduce anxiety and this I do a lot with mental health and I cannot agree with you more but you just have a way of explaining this that's fantastic so can you talk about this book and you know, your research on choices and how having less choices is actually better for our mental health sure sure so you know psychology has long known about the importance of freedom and autonomy to well-being Yes. People want to be the masters of their own fate. This is true when it comes to buying cereal at the grocery. (laughs) And obviously it's true when it comes to choosing a career, a place to live, romantic partners. We want to make decisions. Yes. And and there's just no debate about it. And it's been known for half a century. But the assumption that psychologists have made is that if freedom of choice is good, which it is, then more must be better. If anything is good, more of it must be better. And, and that's a perfectly reasonable assumption to make. And that turns out not to be true. Flood people with options, both the number of options in any given area of life and also the number of areas in life where there are options, instead of liberating people, you paralyze them. You overwhelm them. People can't pull the trigger. So the work that showed this, that first started to show this, was done now almost 20 years ago. And I just jumped on it. I had thought a lot about the importance of freedom and autonomy. I'd thought a lot about what's good and bad about having societies organized on the basis of free market principles so that people can make choices. And here was evidence that freedom, the benefits of freedom had limits. When you give people too many options, you don't make them free, you don't liberate them, you paralyze them. So Um, interesting. And, you know, the original studies were about trivial things like choosing jam. People go into (laughs) a store, a gourmet food store, and there are 24 jams on display, and they can sample as many jams as they want, and you ask what percentage of those people actually buy jam? And then a few days later, later, you just put six jams on display and you ask again, how many people buy jam? And it turns out that 10 times as many people buy jam when there are six on display than when there are 24. That's amazing. It is amazing. And you know, but it's that's logical, pretty- kind of logical too. You know, it's one of these things, I think a lot of the 
great discoveries in psychology seem obvious after somebody has made the discovery. Exactly. But they're, <laughs> but they're invisible until somebody has made the discovery. So yes, it's logical. And, you know, so I wrote a book about why it is that choice, too much choice, produces an inability to decide, increases the chances that when people do decide, they'll make bad decisions, and also makes it likely that when people decide and make good decisions, they'll be less satisfied. They'll be thinking that maybe some other option would have been better than the one they chose. So I wrote a whole book about it. And you know, it's the reason that my TED Talk got so many viewers and the book got so much attention is that once I said it, everyone went, ah, that's, that's the thing. Why that's why I'm being driven crazy every day when I go shopping. I, I thought it was me. It's not me. The world is torturing me. So, um, <laughs> the world is torturing know, me with choices. It has gotten a lot of attention. And, I, and, and, and you know, your, your, your audience should know that when I wrote this book, the Internet as a source of commerce was just getting started. Oh, wow. And so it was a problem then. It is an orders of magnitude bigger problem now. That's crazy now. You know, back then you go to a shop to buy a couple of tops. Nobody buys bottoms anymore since nobody can see the bottom half of your body. (laughs) Yeah, with COVID, we just have to buy nice tops. That's true. You just have to buy T-shirts. You don't need (laughs) So, um, you know, you go to a store to buy a couple of shirts and they have however many they have on display and you don't love any of them. Yeah. Are you going to get into the car and drive across town to go to another store? Maybe not. You'll maybe you'll settle for whatever is the best of what's available in the, that first store. But now you can shop in a thousand stores without ever leaving your living room. Exactly. Shop. So exactly. when do you stop? And the answer is you don't stop. So that's what the book was about: why it paralyzes people and why it produces dissatisfaction even when people manage to make good decisions. Okay, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about why it paralyzes people. You've given us the big picture, so dive in. Why does it paralyze and what does it think, I mean, think about? Think about just buying cereal again. You know, what matters when you buy cereal? What's most important? Is it what it tastes like? Yeah. Is it its nutritional value? Is it its caloric content? Is it its price? Uh, you go to the supermarket, there are multiple things that you're thinking about, and you encounter 250 different kinds of cereal. How long will it take you to find Pick each one up? And- you look at every box, you read the ingredients, you know, you'll starve to death before you <laughs> choose one. Uh, and that's a simple thing. Choosing a job, that's not so simple. Choosing a romantic partner, that's not so simple. You know, if you grow up in the olden days where you meet a small number of people who happen to live in your neighborhood or went to your school or or work in the same place of business you work at, your choice set is reasonably limited. But in these days where swipe you can swipe left and right, your choice set essentially includes everyone in the universe. So what are you looking for in a romantic partner? Do you want somebody who's funny and somebody who's kind and somebody who's empathetic and somebody who's a good listener and somebody who's really, really good looking. <laughs> well, you know, how long will it take you to choose that person? And when you finally find someone to that person looks pretty good. You're thinking, yeah, but there are thousands of other people out there. Surely I can do better than this. And so you live your life alone. So it's a, a constant state of dissatisfaction. It just, you just never satisfied. 
or well, you're a constant. You're in a constant state of uncertainty. When okay. you finally do decide, yeah, you get something, and let's assume it's a pretty good something. Is it a perfect something? Well, is there anything that's perfect? No. And so, but when there's only one alternative, you're not so bothered by the fact that the one you've chosen isn't perfect. When there are a thousand alternatives, you're convinced that somewhere out there is the perfect one. And so you end up dissatisfied with what you've chosen, not because it's bad, but because you just, you're just sure that somewhere out there is something better. And the result is that even when you make good decisions, after putting in an enormous amount of time and effort, you're sure you made a mistake. You're unprepared to commit. And in a lot of things, uh, cases about things that are bigger than serial, the extent to which you commit to your decisions really matters. So, you know, you go to, you, you, you're an 18 year old, you go to college. Is this the perfect college? Who knows? Who knows what the perfect college is? Yeah. You're uncertain about it. If you're kind of always looking over your shoulder, thinking maybe some other place would have been better, you won't throw yourself into the college experience to the same degree that you would if you were confident that this was a good, the right place to be. And what happens as a result of that? You don't throw yourself into it. You get a lot less out of it. Mm. And so every day you get more and more evidence that this is not the right place for you. Is there anything wrong with the place? No. What's wrong is your inability to commit to the place. And I think the same oh, thing is so romantic relationships. If you're not prepared to commit to your partner, it's not going to be nearly as rich a relationship as it would be if you were fully committed. And right, you, you have these romantic couples and each of them, they're, they're together, sitting at a restaurant, you know, facing each other. And she's looking over his shoulder to see if somebody better is walking by. And he's looking over her shoulder to see if somebody better is walking by. This, this is not a recipe for a successful relationship. No, so that's... You're plagued with dissatisfaction, even with good options. Wow. When there are thousands of other options out there to be explored. And there's that frustration that you cannot get to all those other options, but there's always this hanging over your head that there's something better. And as you say, that stops that level of commitment, so you can't enjoy anything. So our level of enjoyment has dropped. Our level of satisfaction has dropped. And, you know, and if you make a decision and then, you know, you order grilled salmon in a restaurant, you're eating it. And would you order it again next time? Well, it depends on how much you enjoy it. But if how much you enjoy it depends on how much time you spend thinking about whether the, the chicken would have been better, you're not going to enjoy it as much. And so you walk out and you'll tell your friend, I wouldn't go there. The salmon's just okay. You know, the salmon's better than okay, unless you're thinking all the time, bite after bite, that some op- other alternative would have been giving you more pleasure. So I, you know, this is, wow. I, should, I should emphasize the problem that we're talking about is a rich people's problem. It's a first world problem. It's a champagne problem. It's a champagne problem. In most places in the world, for most people in the world, the yeah. problem remains that there isn't enough choice in life. Not that there's too much, but in the privileged environments that, you know, I have spent most of my life blessedly living in. Yeah. It's a problem of abundance and not a problem of absence. And it really breaks my heart to see incredibly talented, enthusiastic young adults 
who have had every advantage in life come to college miserable because every day they're convinced there's really some other thing they ought to be doing in some other place. And they go through college and they leave college just as uncertain about what path to follow as they were when they entered. Not true of everyone, but it's true of a lot of people. And, you know, psych services in selective colleges and universities are are bursting at the seams. Mm -hmm. They can't meet the demand of the the most privileged, most talented people who ever live, all of whom are walking around depressed and anxious. I don't want to suggest that this overabundance of choice is the sole explanation for this, but it is a part of the explanation. And I should also emphasize that, you know, six months ago, the world was different. The world you and I are talking about is the world from six months ago. Exactly. And I assume the world from six months or a year from now, in the world we currently live in, feeling that we our mm-hmm. choices are limited is, is accurate. I mean, they are. Yes. We all feel hemmed in. We all feel constrained. Though, again, some of us are less affected by, by COVID than others. Yeah. But there's a lot of stuff that we are not free to do now. But that's not how it was a short time before, and it's not how it's going to be when the world Overcome. He opens again. And I, you know, so I want people to appreciate that what I was writing about and what we're talking about is a feature of yesterday's world and tomorrow's world, even if it's not a feature of the world we're living in at this moment. Well, that's actually true, but there's also that legacy. You know, we've gotten to such a habit of, of being dissatisfied. It's almost like that's, it's a society of dissatisfaction. And if you look at the self-help industry and the positive psychology movement and the whole sort of positivity movement of people are constantly looking for something to make themselves happy. And that's also a bunch of choices. So you're unhappy in this choice, and then you go into the self-help world and find a whole bunch of, there's so many more choices there. And it's just, it's an endless amount of choices. So in a sense, we, we would you not maybe think the way I've been kind of approaching this whole quarantine time and the change in thinking is that the lid has come off. So we have to start facing a lot about ourselves. We have to start tapping into our own inner wisdom. We have to start thinking more deeply and dealing with stuff that we didn't have time to deal with before. But now we've got a bit more time to start dealing with stuff and making choices about our own lives and, and kind of that less choices on the outside is making us look inside a little. So maybe it's it's a good thing. It may be a good thing. You know, the question is, do we have the resources to do that kind of self-examination and come out of it better, stronger, more satisfied people? And I, I don't know the answer. You know, it's people develop habits of, of acting in the world and of thinking about the world. And I'm not sure you can snap your fingers and break those habits. So there's a lot of research on what's called negativity bias. Yes. So bad things have a bigger impact on us than good things do. So what's salient now is what's salient whenever you make a decision is the respects in which it falls short. And the aspects of it that are good have less of an impact. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the salmon is slightly overcooked. And you walk out of the restaurant, no matter how much you've enjoyed the meal and all you're thinking about is that they overcooked the salmon a little bit. So at this moment, what's most salient to us is all of the things we've we have had to give up temporarily and the opportunities that have been opened up for those of us who are lucky enough to to have that, to have those opportunities is much less salient. 
we we focus on what we're losing, on what's bad more than on what's good, which is why one aspect of this positivity movement you're talking about is to encourage people to develop the habit of being grateful or of focusing on aspects of their lives that they should be grateful for. You don't need to encourage people to be displeased. <laughs> people do that without any prompt. They pay that attention. It drags, it grabs the attention very quickly. It grabs their attention. You do have to encourage people to pay attention to what's good. And you know, it's it's like it, it's a vacuous sort of truism, you know, that we all you have a lot to be grateful for. Just, I know, I know, of course I have a lot to be grateful for, but if only they had cooked the salmon better, you know? So so it turns out there's research to suggest that being grateful is itself a habit that you can cultivate. If you make a point at the end of every day of identifying two or three things that happened during the day that really were good, that you have reason to be grateful for, that becomes more and more natural. And you start noticing the half full glass more and the half empty glass less essentially automatically. And it seems insulting to people that they need to develop a habit of being grateful, but we do. I I know all this stuff and I still find myself focusing on what I didn't like about the show, the movie I just watched instead of what I did like. It takes practice. Before we continue today's episode, I want to tell you about a new hair care brand I just started using and absolutely love. Function of Beauty is hair care that is formulated specifically for you. No matter your hair type, they create shampoo, conditioner and treatments to fit your unique needs. How unique you ask? Function of Beauty has over 54 trillion possible ingredient combinations to make sure your formula is as unique as you. Here's how it works. First, you take a quick but thorough quiz and tell them a little about your hair. Next, Function of Beauty's team determines the right blend of ingredients, then bottle your custom formula to order. Then they deliver your personalized formula right to your door in a cute customized bottle with your favorite color and fragrance. They even print your name on it. Plus, their formulas are vegan and cruelty-free. They never use sulfates, parabens, or any other harmful ingredients. Function of Beauty is not just the first ever custom hair care brand. It is the internet's top-rated customized hair care brand with over 40,000 real five-star reviews and counting. So, what are you waiting for? Go to functionofbeauty.com slash drleaf to take your four-part hair profile quiz and save 20% on your first order. Go to functionofbeauty.com forward slash drleaf for 20% off and to let them know you heard about it from our show. That's functionofbeauty.com forward slash drleaf. I've been doing research on sort of the mind-brain interaction, as I've mentioned, for 38 years, and I do clinical trials, whatever, and I just did one recently. One of the things I've been looking at for years is the whole concept of how long does it take to form a memory or to form a thought and a habit, and well, a thought that's long-term, and then it's got to be converted to a habit, and it does take, there's been, as we know, there's been the myth of 21 days and that kind of thing, and I wanted to really look at that, and it actually takes at least 60, at least nine weeks before you have turned something into a habit, 21 days more or less to build a long-term memory and then at least nine weeks to build a habit. So if we think of people now in the current climate is we've removed people's 
choices, like you say, their choices have limited. We've had a few cycles of nine weeks where we can start looking at life, life differently. So I think it's going to be, it's interesting. People have shifted and you can almost see it in social media. I can see it in the work I'm doing and just the contact that I have with people through through the platform I have is there's a, there's a shift where people have gone from where is me and the focus on, the, on a lot of the negative to encouraging each other to look more at the positive, which is actually quite a nice thing to see that shift. And another thing I wanted to just throw out there, it's something that I've had a discussion with a few psychologists. I wanted to see what you think. I know we talk about the negativity bias. I've studied the brain for years, but I don't think it's a negativity bias at all. I don't think humans have a negativity bias. I think we have a positivity bias. And and if you look at the neuroscience, we've, we all our circuitry and everything, all our cells, all of our, everything about the brain and the body is wired for actually for health, for upliftment, etc. literally wired for love. So if we, if something is out of that norm, so it's something like COVID or something like multiple choices that make you feel this disturbance or the 20 comments you get on on Instagram post and two are bad and you, your attention is drawn to the bad. I think our attention is drawn to the bad because it's so abnormal and because it's a, it's a, it's away from the normal. And that's what's drawing our attention, which is a slight shift. And, and I think you kind of said that as well in terms of people, when people at university, for example, they've got all these universities to choose from and then they choose whichever college they go to but they're not sure if they should have gone there or there and the top three choices and they never really throw their, their minds into it so there's that whole mindset so the way people are thinking about things is affecting how they are moving through the day and how they how they're making new choices there's just no question about that there's a, a new yorker cartoon that i sometimes show when i give talks about this work of a young woman wearing a university sweatshirt and the sweatshirt says brown very very distinguished university yeah providence rhode island brown underneath it in smaller letters but my first choice was yale <sighs> now that's cute it's funny to have a yeah. sweatshirt that says that but the question i ask my audience is imagine going through four years at brown with that sentence in your head oh you would never get yeah you wouldn't get anything, you know, a fraction of what Brown no. has to offer if every day you're thinking your life would be better if only you were at Yale, which is, exactly. first of all, not true. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but it doesn't matter if you think it's true, then you're just not going to, you're just not going to take advantage of what Brown has to offer, which is a lot more than any one person can possibly take advantage of in a, in a you know, a stint at college. So. You know, maybe you're right that we the, what the reason that we, the negative has such an impact is that we we notice it because it's unusual. But whether that's the reason or not, what seems un, incontrovertible is that we notice exactly, and, and the result is that they get weight that's disproportionate to the importance that they actually have in our lives. Now, look, really bad things happen to people. Exactly. I'm not suggesting that we should turn a blind eye to suffering our own or other people's mm -hmm. it's just you can't treat slightly overcooked salmon as you know sort of on a par with losing a loved one mm. you, need, you need a certain amount of perspective and scale and and what i worry about is that people have kind of lost it maybe the duration when, when this when the COVID first started I, a lot of people asked me, is, is this going to produce a lasting change? And I said, who knows? You know, I said, it partly depends on how long it lasts. If this lasts for two months and then the economy opens up and people go back to living their lives, probably within a week, there'll be no evidence that this ever happened. 
in the way people go through life. Well, it isn't lasting two months. <laughs> it's surely going to be with us for a year. It may be with us for more than a year. Yeah. And it's quite possible that that's long enough for sort of fundamental aspects of how we act in the world to be altered. And then when things do open up, it will turn out that it is opening into a different world because we have become different people. I still don't think you could know that, but it seems to me possible that mm -hmm. something that lasts as long as this will have relatively permanent changes, will make relatively permanent changes in what people care about and what they seek when life goes back to some version of normal. Very interesting. And so, so if 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 you if we take your uh, your point of view, which is I totally agree with, that too many choices, this abundance of choices, has paralyzed us and done so many different things to our psyche, which is not very positive. Where people just constantly live in a state of dissatisfaction and uncertainty, which is, and I'd love to talk about how that affects mental health in a moment. But with just to come back to COVID and kind of wrap that part of the discussion up, if we've reduced choices, do you think do you not think that the possibility exists that we're going to improve in this? arena that are, because our choices have been limited we're going to have a bit more in, we've learned to almost slow down and appreciate and smell the roses again and so this could be a positive little hiatus in humanity it could be but then it ends and the, rush the, starts. Wheels, the wheels of commerce start up again and we go out shopping and there are all those different kinds of cereal and you know, how long does it take for us to go back to being the to way those we habits. before it started? And I think it's just, it's a completely open question. I think we will re-enter that world differently than, yeah. we, than we left it. But I'm not confident that the world won't suck us back into being the kinds of people that we were. Because everything about the mm. logic of, of consumption and markets sort of pushes us in that direction. So, you know, there will be a lot of pressure for us to go back to being the kind of people we were before all of this started. So it's going to be a very conscious and deliberate effort on the part of, of the, the world of abundance that you, you speak about to actually not let that fall back into place. That people can, because you also speak a lot about value and, and morality and wisdom and that kind of thing, how that's been affected by the current market and the current overabundance sort of philosophy and all these choices. How do you think all of this combination, how do you, let's talk a little bit about that, a little bit about the wisdom and values and how that's been affected by choices and free market. And okay. So I did write a book some, uh, yes. some years ago called The Costs of Living. And the thrust of that book is that despite all of the good things that market competition has brought us, you know, there's no question that, that a good part of the world lives in, with a level of material abundance that no one could ever have dreamt mm -hmm. centuries ago, despite all of that. And it has led to a belief that the most efficient and effective way to give people what they want is to make it available on the market. Let people buy, choose the things they want. Let them buy the things they want. Don't impose anything on people. And you'll, people will get more and more of what they care about for less and less. Mm. And what I argue in this book, The Cost of Living, is that, is that markets have their place, but that place isn't every place. You know, buying jeans or, or cereal in the market is okay. Buying education, not so much. Buying mm. health care, 
Not so much. Mm-hmm. Buying romantic partners, not so much. Mm. There are other aspects to life that involve you know, sort of wanting to be a certain kind of person in the world, wanting to treat other people in a certain kind of way, doing work that you think makes a positive contribution to the lives of others that markets don't capture. And when mm-hmm. markets start to encroach on these other aspects of, our, of ourselves, these other aspects of ourselves erode. And so it quickly becomes, in almost any situation, is it worth my while? So there's a term that has become common in the age of Donald Trump in describing relationships. And people talk about relationships as, quote, transactional, which is a very antiseptic term for what's in it for me. me? I'll do something for you as long as I get something back. What's in it for me? That's not the relationship you want to have with friends. It's not the relationship you want to have between a teacher and a student, between a parent and a child, between romantic partners. Mm. It's not what's in it for me. It's what's in it for you. What Mm. can I do to make your life better? That's my objective as a teacher, as a parent, as a friend, and as a romantic partner. But you get this sort of transactional orientation. You know, you walk into a store and you assume that they're there to rip you off. They're going to try to sell you more than you want, and it's worth less than what you're paying for it. So you have to defend yourself. That's a terrible attitude. Terrible way. With you mm-hmm. Into your relations to the people in your life mm-hmm. or even into your work. And so the point of the book, The Cost of Living, is that we have been overly enthusiastic about this transactional approach to life. And the result is that it is wrecking our close relations to other people and our relations to our work. So the the market is good, but it needs to be it needs to be bounded. Yeah, it so needs, they need to be boundaries. Mm. Other aspects of our lives can be cultivated, and uh, you know the argument is that we'll be happier and the world will be better if we keep the market in its place. I love that approach. That's why I wanted to bring that up because I, I've heard you speak about that, and I just think it's vitally important that people understand that transactional. As you say, it's very clinical. It's very not not at all indicative of what a true relationship should be. So you've got to limit what the market delves into. You even gave the example of in the medical world as well. You know, you you can't have that kind of transactional relationship in in mental in me, medical health as well as you know it, it sort of crosses the boundaries as well as it does into relationships. But you can sort of see it in the U.S., which yeah. is stands alone in terms of the way healthcare is provided. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you read all the time about drug companies and physicians and hospitals making decisions based on bottom line. Exactly. Get the surgeries in whether people need it or not. Yeah. So it's like you've got to get X amount of surgeries done to get X amount of money in the hospital. Exactly. And, you know, so it's interesting because one of the things that COVID did, you know, there are several cities around the world where at seven o'clock, some point in the evening, People open their windows and they bat, they bang on pots to celebrate frontline workers yes. who are yes. enabling us to live our lives. Not just in the health in in the medical settings, but, but you know, all of them mm-hmm. who stock our the shelves of our stores, who serve us, and so on. You know, it's like, and we we call them heroes. What bothers me about that is that they were just as much heroes before COVID as during COVID. Wow, good point. And we don't treat them as heroes. I mean, doctors get pretty well treated. 
Yeah. But we don't treat the people who restock shelves as heroes. Wow. You know, we pay them terribly. They get no benefits. They're basically invisible to us. And now, because of this crisis, we, we clap our hands in appreciation. And when the crisis ends, they, go back to be, they will go back to being Me invisible. Visible, which is unacceptable. Which is unacceptable. And so, you know, here's an, we were talking about this a few minutes ago. It's an opportunity for us to mm. change how we are in the world. Yeah. You know, if it produces a lasting effect, then when we go to the grocery store, we will see the people. Yes. Who are making it possible. And say thank you. <laughs> and say thank you and respect them and demand yeah. that their employers treat them properly and pay them properly. Yes. I'm just not optimistic that, that this attitude will, you know, will persist when the mm. crisis is over. Oh, I'm so glad you raised that. It's it's such a valid point that you've raised, and 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 something that we need to think deeply about. And and like now, as as we need to change racism and not just let it slip back into the slip back into under under getting that getting rid of a Confederate statue, we need to definitely get into a changed mindset about everything. I'd love to. Just come back to the choices again and talk about, you know, this society, you mentioned something earlier on that is so relevant, that societies of great abundance where individuals are offered more freedom and choice, personal, professional material, et cetera, than ever before are witnessing an epidemic of depression. I've heard you speak about this, and this is an area that, that I work in a lot. And I talk about depression just, just to give you a bit of background as not as an illness, which is very much the neuroreductionistic that society has currently the sort of gold standard is it's an illness and it's with symptoms that you must get rid of I rather see depression as and it's actually very much more scientific depression anxiety etc as, as a signal or a warning sign that when you embrace it there's something underneath there there's a message behind it that you something's not right in your life that you need to deal with a trauma or maybe too many choices or whatever so I'd love to link the concept of too many choices in an overabundant society to depression anxiety and so on could you talk about that? So, you know, and, and what I'm about to say is mostly speculative, but but I'm not shy about speculating. So one of the one of the arguments in my book about choice is that how much of a problem having a lot of choice is depends on your aims when you make a choice. Mm. So my colleagues and I distinguish two categories of people, and it's not, there's not a bright line that separates them. People who want the best, we call such people maximizers, mm-hmm. the best restaurant, the best pair of jeans, the best school, the best job, and so on. Mm-hmm. Only the best will do. And people who want good enough, mm. we call them satisficers. Good enough doesn't mean that you'll settle for anything. You can have very high standards. But as soon as you encounter something that meets those standards, you stop looking. And so Mm -hmm. imagine going to a grocery store where there are 250 kinds of cereal. The maximizer has to look at every single one. Mm -hmm. How else do you know which one is the best? Unless Mm -hmm. it's exhausting, just the thought of it. (laughs) It is completely exhausting. I mean, it didn't used to be 100 years ago, but the world we live in now, it's not even exhausting. It's impossible. You can't do it. The satisficer who might have high standards will look at these cereals and as soon as he or she finds one that meets those standards, stops looking. Doesn't matter that there are another hundred varieties that I haven't examined. This one is good enough for me. And so in a world of hyperabundance, being a satisficer is a lifeline. That's where your peace will come. Peace will come. Searches will stop. 
You can be satisfied with what you've chosen and not mm. worry about what you have left. Behind. So good. So what we have found, we, we developed a little questionnaire to sort of assess whether individuals are more like maximizers or more like satisfizers. Yeah. And what we have found is that people who score high on maximizing are borderline clinically depressed on paper and pencil measures of depression. Mm-hmm. And so when I give talks about this, I su- and I suggest that too much choice can contribute to the problem of depression, that's part of why. If you are out to find the best, you will be experiencing one one experience after another, one choice after another will be disappointing and leave you with doubt about whether you've made the right decision and whether you're a good decision maker. And the cumulative effect of that, Mm -hmm. nothing is ever good enough. I am a failure. All my decisions lead to disappointment and regret. It's hard not to get depressed Mm -hmm. under those conditions. So that's the, now I have no real empirical evidence that there's a causal relation between being a maximizer and, and being borderline clinically depressed. We just have scores on questionnaires that suggest it. Are you looking to take your mental health healing journey to the next level and find sustainable solutions to some of your biggest struggles? Then join me at my 2020 Virtual Mental Health Solutions Summit, December 3 through 6. I will be joined by amazing guest speakers like Dr. Daniel Amen, who will be sharing some strategies on how to stop those automatic negative thoughts and keep your brain healthy. And Dr. Henry Cloud, who will be discussing when and how to set boundaries and how to enforce those boundaries. I will also be joined by Dr. Nicole Lepera, who will be discussing how to heal from childhood trauma, secondary trauma and more. Dr. Will Cole will be sharing some great tips on how to reduce inflammation in our brains and bodies and what to do and eat for optimal mental and brain health. Finally, my good friend, singer, and member of the hit group Destiny's Child, Michelle Williams, and I will talk you through how to make brain detoxing part of your everyday routine. There will also be sessions on how to stop overthinking, how to deal with toxic people and words, and so much more. We are also pleased to be offering CME and CEU credits. For more information and to register, visit drleafconference.com. That's D-R-L-E-A-F-C-O-N-F-E-R-E-N-C-E.com. The link will also be in the show notes. I tend to agree with you there totally because one of the aspects we looked at in my most recent trials was looking at how people change when they feel empowered. So my whole thing that my whole approach to mind and stuff is to help people to become more self-regulated. And when you're more self-regulated, you're going to make better choices and you're going to know how to become, as you say, a satisfier. What did you call it? Someone who's satisfier. Satisfice, I love that word. I didn't make that word up. I borrowed it from a very distinguished economist and it's... it's a good word. It's a good I've word. I've been regretful ever since because people think I had to invent a word that nobody can figure out or even pronounce <laughs> when there were perfectly good alternatives. So anyway, satisfier works. Satisfy, satisfy, satisfy. So what I found was that when I made in, in, our, in our experimental group, when people became more aware, like we, we looked at narrative, we looked at psychological measures, we looked at some of the traditional measures. I also have developed a scale that looks at people's ability to self-regulate and the awareness of that self-regulation. But the biggest part of the psychological measures for me was the narrative to see how they see their life and so on. And then we also looked at physiological measures, blood and DNA and all that stuff, a lot of different measures. And then we also looked in the brain, we looked using QEEG 
need to see the responses. And what was very interesting is when people, I introduced them to mind management, self-regulating mind management techniques that I've also developed over a long period of time. The point that I'm making here is that when people became aware of how they were running their life and how they were responding, and that would lead to the choices, it would lead to the multiplicity of choices about the work. If I think of their narratives, the choices at work, the choices in relationship, the choices with friendships and so on and so on, all the different choices, a lot of them felt that they were barriers and challenges and didn't know what to do, which kind of goes to your dissatisfaction or uncertainty. They felt very uncertain about what to do with them. But once, and the control group just got worse and worse. So the more we made them aware of them self-regulating their choices, the worse they got without mind management. The control, the experimental group that we gave mind management to, where they then felt empowered to look at the toxic effect of maybe toxic choices and toxic stress. And and then that barrier and a challenge is something that I can actually do something about. And so they felt that they could kind of almost, I think, limit their you know, choices maybe. In, and I hadn't thought of it like that until I spoke to you now, but because they spoke a lot in their narratives about making decisions about and changing how they make decisions and that kind of thing. But we saw a significant improvement in brain function, in things like physiological measures, not just, we saw causative links between increased mind management, increased empowerment, increased ability to recognize that I can see this as toxic, I can manage the toxic effect, I can face those barriers and challenges. As they got into that mind management mode of self-regulating their choices, their cortisol levels drop significantly, their inflammation in their body drops significantly, even down to the telomeres on, on the chromosomes would were increased in length. And this was in sections of nine weeks at a time. So that was quite fascinating just to support what you're saying there. I agree with what you said about the satisfier who's making choices that they can accept the choice and then not have to jump and wish for something else. Well, it's it's terrific that you've actually got techniques that help people think about their choices in that way. Because, you know, in the years since my book originally came out, I've gotten hundreds and hundreds of, you know, emails from people sometimes sounding sort of desperate. Yeah. You know, they I can imagine. they're appreciative because I I put a name to the their problem, but I don't. You know, I, I can't help them. I'm not a, a, I'm not a clinician and B, I'm not going to deliver clinical advice by email. You know, I think that your, you know, your insight is, is a good one. It seems unthinkable to settle for good enough when the best is out there. Mm-hmm. You know, in fact, the word settle, when you hear somebody say, well, I settled for this. That's not a neutral word. That's not a mere description. True. The word settle is, has negativity built into it. True. I could have done better, but I settled for this. Mm. And what I'm trying to suggest that's, is that settling is a good thing. I like what you say. Not a bad mm. thing. But it seems, it seems unpatriotic, un-American. You know, why would you go to the eighth best school when you can go to the best school? As if these rankings mean anything. Oh, gosh. It's such a different concept. It's a totally different looking at quality versus quantity almost, even, even if that's the right way of using it. But it takes, it takes work to get into the habit of seeking good enough mm-hmm. and feeling comfortable when you get good enough. It's not automatic. Everything mm-hmm. about the it's work is pushing you in the opposite direction. So you have to kind of really be resolute. And know that it's, you know, it's a, it's a much more rational way to live your life and a much more satisfying way 
to live your life. I agree. I think it's brilliant. It's it's so it's so it feels so right, and it just makes so much sense. Let's pivot to another idea. You you in your in your how does your research relate to the idea of ignorance is bliss? In that the less we know, the less options or choices we know, the better. Do you think there's a how do you feel about that? Well, you know, I think you know, real ignorance is not bliss. No, there's a, a, a balance, a nice fine balance. There's a, a six-ton semi coming at you. You you sort of want to know that it's coming, yeah. right? Ignorance is not bliss, but this notion that the the bad decisions we make or the dissatisfaction that we have with the decisions we make would be averted if only we knew more. That is, the problem with our decisions is that we were ignorant. We didn't know enough. Give me more information. Let me read all those reviews on Amazon before I decide what toaster to buy. Let me read all those reviews on Airbnb before I decide where to spend my long weekend. This is the road to lunacy. There is that we don't suffer from inadequate information and getting more of it is not going to make our necessarily going to make our decisions better. You might make a different decision if you have more information, but you'll probably also be less satisfied with the decision. So you almost need to put a cap on it. It's like you said in the beginning is more isn't necessarily better. So and ignorance isn't blessed. It's to find that middle of the road. This, I think, is not, is not a good, good uh, no. way of your life, but there can be too much information. The, the, you know, and it's sort of like when 9-11 happened, the, a lot of questions arose about whether the U- U.S. security services should have known it was coming. You have all these spy organizations collecting massive amounts of data. Should they have known it was coming? Now, after it happened... You look at what was out there and you say, yeah, yes, they should have. There was this, there was this, there was this, and there was this. Why didn't they see it? Well, of course, they did see it, but they also saw six million other things. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I see your point. Knowing after the fact what mattered is easy. Knowing in advance what matters is not so easy. Mm-hmm. 2020 is always hind- what hindsight's always 2020 vision. They were drowning in information. They, mm-hmm. had, they were overwhelmed with data. Now, maybe they should have seen it. I don't know. I'm no expert. But the mere fact that it seemed obvious after it happened doesn't mean that it, it was obvious in advance. Anyone before it happened. And so, and the other problem with too much information is. And I make a big point of this in the book. When we have an experience and we evaluate it, we don't have an absolute standard to judge whether this was a good meal or not. When we, when we make our judgment about this restaurant meal, what we're asking is, was this as good as the last meal I ate in a restaurant? Was this as good as I hoped it would be? Was this as good as I expected it to be? And the more information you have, the higher your expectations, mm. the more you know about what's available in the restaurant across town, the less satisfied you're going to be with the choice that you made. And so in that sense, having some blinders on is almost certainly going to make it easier for you to appreciate the choice you made instead of beating yourself up 
for not having made a different choice. So it's almost like being able to look in the quality of the moment, the quality of the now moment, and make it work. Quality of the now without worrying too much about, you know, buyer's remorse is, is you know, there's something good about buyer's remorse. You won't make the same mistake Stake the next again. Time. On the other hand, there's something terrible about buyer's remorse because it'll, you'll think you made a mistake even when you didn't make a mistake. Yeah. There you go, and it can it can permeate so many other things. Well, let's just talk about like on the based on that. That's kind of can make people feel it's decision making anxiety. So, what would you suggest? Maybe is just some strategies to help people when they are sitting with choosing that Airbnb, choosing that cereal, choosing that pair of jeans, whatever, choosing that, and, and then those are the practical in the, the right, better decisions. Right, I have a few suggestions. One, Fantastic. Remember that good enough is almost always good enough. Stop yeah. looking for Love the better. That's, I think, the single most important thing. Two, choose when to choose. What do I mean by that? Sometimes, instead of doing all of this searching yourself, call up a friend. You know, you need a new cell phone. What kind of phone should I get? You can spend three weeks burying yourself in information, or you can call your friend who recently got a new cell phone and say, did you like it? Yes, Brilliant advice. Get the same damn phone. Exactly. They, yeah, that's brilliant advice. Choose when to choose. And I think a third thing is just put arbitrary limits on how much searching you will do. So in the case of brick and mortar, I'm only going to go to two stores. And then I'm just going to choose the best thing I see in those two stores. And in online, I'm only going to look at three websites. And, and notice how hard it is because it's so damn easy to just look at one more. Right. But if you these limits on yourself, or I'm going to spend 20 minutes looking for a toaster. And at the end of that 20 minutes, I'm going to pick whatever toaster seems like the best and not worry about the rabbit hole I can go down if I decide to look at every toaster that's available on every website on the planet. So I think reminding yourself that good enough is good enough. Good enough is good enough. Having realistic expectations. Realistic expectations. Setting arbitrary limits. Setting arbitrary limits on how much searching you'll do and sometimes letting other people choose on your behalf are ways out of this. The one thing I'm reasonably sure of is that no one is going to pass a law that says you can only have 12 different kinds of cereal in the store. Exactly. You're always going to have 250 plus or whatever. (laughs) The world is going to pose this problem when we recover from COVID, whether we like it or not. And so the way to solve this problem is to bring a different set of skills and expectations with you as you make decisions than the ones that people had before. So I, you know, I think these are helpful. None of these things are easy to do. You know, if you only look at two websites, you're going to be thinking, oh, just one more. Just let me look at one more. And you pick a toaster and you get the toaster and you go, oh, it's all right. But I'm sure if I'd looked at one more website, I would have gotten a better. So you got to stop that. You've got to grab that thought and stop that immediately. you got to stop it and you got to, you know, focus on how, you know, you, you had two hours free to read a book or watch a movie or have a conversation with a friend that you would otherwise have spent finding the best toaster online. So you gain an enormous amount and the toaster you got is good enough. And after you've done this enough times, it gets easier and easier, I think, to follow these rules. It feels like less of a compromise with the way you think you're supposed to be. 
Oh, I love that. I love that. I th- that le- become feels like less of a compromise. And I, I love all those strategies. And I think what you said there is also very valuable is to phone up your friend when you're choosing that cell phone. What do you think? Or ask someone else. So limit your, set the arbitrary limit, but also what is it? Choose how you're going to choose. Or what did you say? Choose how many choices you want to make and then con- choose when to choose and then involve other people. Ask them for advice if you, and, and that delimits it. I know you mean, you're a researcher, you write books, so do I. And you, I, I mean, I know for myself, I have to actually set a limit on how many resources research articles before I know that I'll have I mean like if you, you just you can just keep on researching and researching and researching and never write anything you know you sort of I have to tell myself okay that's it I'm not looking at any more that's it from there I have to make my decision and if I didn't I would never write anything I would just research all the time and and you know and I hear too the availability of information you know it, you can now really pretty much read any article published in any journal without ever leaving your study exactly and and there's something great about that. It's a lot easier to get information than it was. On the other hand, when do you stop? And when and then also you have so many. I mean, I remember studying at university in the eighties and having a limit in a library where you would have to go and get them printed out for you had a limit to how many and you have to go to the library. So you would study each thing in such depth. Now that you maybe had a hundred, now you've got a thousand or two thousand. You read the abstract and nothing more. And you can't get the same value out of it. So it's that in depth we've we we're going like this now instead of like this. And I think choices have done that to us as well. It's removed the depth out of our humanity and then we become transactional, as you said earlier on we the humanity goes and it's all about transaction and gaining data and just putting more notches in your belt but you're not doing anything with that data and that's very unhealthy for the brain and for society well exactly for the mind and the brain the body society everything incredible well the last question i mean i've got a million questions i want to ask you but if i could ask you one more what advice do you have for someone who may be experiencing a lot of mental distress after making the decision now you've touched on this but i'd love to you know the buyer's remorse thing you mentioned it earlier on i should have done this i just and you have touched on that could we just take it a little bit deeper maybe in terms of like maybe advice strategies on okay i've made this bad decision about a house you've purchased or the airbnb or the cereal or whatever or the romantic partner or so there are a few things, and again, not and not, not these are not easy to do. They they they're gonna you have to develop new habits. One is we talked about this earlier. Train yourself to focus more on what is good about a decision, and a little bit less about what's disappointing. That's so, so good. You may still make a decision that's imperfect. You may still make a decision that you could have done better. But you will have a rich reservoir of positive characteristics of the decision that you can feast on. And, you know, because of what what I called negativity bias before, it's like it's like a toothache. When you when you have a toothache, the whole universe is now on your tooth. Nothing Mm -hmm. else exists. So there's one thing wrong with your decision. And that's the only thing that exists. Mm -hmm. And the trick to get out of that habit and instead train yourself to focus on what's good about a decision, and that will lead to less buyer's remorse. I don't want to shut that out altogether. We do make mistakes. And you, and you just learn, learn from them, yeah. Don't learn from mistakes unless you acknowledge that they are mistakes. So, exactly. So you don't want to, you know, just be completely Pollyanna and treat, you know, every day, every decision as perfect and every day is perfect. 
But training yourself to pay attention to what's good makes the takes a lot of the sting out, I think. I really like that. And the good news is that you say it is hard work, which is in this current quick fix society, people don't like that. They want a quick fix for everything. It's not going to be a quick fix. It's going to, with my research, I would tell my subjects and I tell my patients when I practice, it's going to take you at least nine weeks per concept, per thought to change in your life. So that's, that means focusing on the positive of a decision or whatever it may be. The important thing is to appreciate that it's worth the work. I love that. The important thing is to appreciate that it's worth the work. That's incredible. I have to ask you one last very quick question, which relates to this. Do you think there's a connection between having too many choices and the problem of overthinking or ruminating? Well, so I think what what all these choices do is they push us to overthink, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm. You know, Consumer Reports magazine will have an article about washing machines, say, and they and they have 50 washing machines that they evaluate and they evaluate them on 20 different attributes. Now, you know, when I get a washing machine, the question is, in my mind is, will it break? (laughs) Does it clean the clothes? And is it easy to use? (laughs) Yes. Then I read the article and I see, well, there are all these other things that I ought to be thinking about, too. And I go, oh, God, I didn't realize that this was a nuclear physics problem. I thought it was just how do I get my clothes clean problem? (laughs) So I think that that we're pushed to overthink because Mm -hmm. when the world gives you so many options, your your task is to figure out how they differ from one another. And which ones are the best for you? And that just leads to overthinking. Mm. And when overthinking stops you from choosing, I think that's when you get into this problem of ruminating, which at least as I understand it, is basically thinking over and over again Mm. about the same thing in unproductive ways. So I don't think it helps to have all these options when it comes to overthinking. You know, analysis paralysis is the way a lot of people describe it. And, and also rumination. The way to avoid making a decision you'll regret is by not making a decision at all. There is no other way to avoid regret. We will all make decisions that we regret unless we don't make any decisions. Exactly. And it's impossible not to make decisions because you're making them every moment of your day. So is itself a decision. So. So you're always making decisions, so you may as well learn how to manage the decision-making process. So it's almost like when I hear you sort of in summary is we need to be almost delineating the limit, delineating what am I looking for? Like you said, I'm looking for a washing machine. It must clean. It, it must be simple to use, whatever. the. So you go in with that objective and then you use, so you limit the amount. When you've done that is then to ignore all the other stuff. And, and it's really hard to ignore all the other stuff. When Very. Every- Shouting at you to pay attention, especially because, as you said it earlier on, today's society, the America, the sort of the, the story of America is that is all this. Everything's best. You've got to make sure that you get the best. So there's this tremendous pressure to be the maximizer, and the story is that the maximizer is the happiest person. Meanwhile, as you've so clearly said the maximizer is not the happiest person. That is certainly true. It's the satisfier or whatever that word was. <laughs> This has been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for your incredible insight and wisdom. I would absolutely love to talk more to you at another and invite you back again to talk more in depth about, because you've touched on some topics today that I would love to have gone deeper on today, but I really wanted to focus on decision. That'll be fantastic. And you've, you know, you've given us so much wisdom and so much advice. How can people find out more about you and your great books? Google me, go to all the books are available on Amazon. I tend to have a very non-existent social media presence since I am not a fan of social media. I think it's really 
cheapening the discourse, and so I stay away. But you know, you won't have people will not have trouble finding me. Not at all. You've got many TED talks, and millions of people who watch your TED talks. We'll put the links to your TED talks in in the show notes, and you'll and you'll as you say, we Google you. You're all over the place, so it's super easy to find you. We'll put we'll put information there. Your books are available wherever books are sold, and we'll put up some links to those as well. So thank you so much for your time and for a wonderful discussion. I've enjoyed our conversation so much, and I've learned so much. So thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Take care. You too. Thank you so much. Stay safe. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leith. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors.